Hi everyone, welcome to Guts and Girl Bits. I'm so excited to have you listening to this episode today. I'm talking with a naturopath who is just so inspiring. She's incredibly knowledgeable and passionate about the topic that we're going to be talking about today. And she's just all around a really lovely person. You might notice that there's a little bit of editing that I had to do to this podcast. And the reason was because I had Lara with me while I was recording but she was not a happy chappy and sometimes she was screaming and so I had to do a bit of editing and just re-record some of my sections because you just couldn't even hear what I was saying because Lara was screaming over the top of me but my guest for today was just so gracious and patient and understanding which I'm so grateful for so my guest is the amazing Tabitha McIntosh. Now, if you are a fellow practitioner or if you're in the industry, then, you know, you're probably about as excited as I am right now because Tabitha is just so brilliant at what she does. And I'm just very grateful to have her on the show. This is a topic that I've been wanting to talk about for a long time. And it's something that many people don't really know that much about or they might know a little bit but they don't know the extent that it's actually affecting people. What we're going to be talking about is how chemicals in our environment are impacting on our hormones, particularly hormones as women, but also affecting our fertility and the health of our offspring and the health of our grandchildren, because these chemicals can actually pass through in a multi-generational level, which is really scary. So Tabitha and I talk about that in the podcast and we talk about where we can look at where you can look out for these sorts of chemicals and what you can reduce what you can do to reduce your exposure. We talk about some of the things that like we're seeing in the literature coming up that Tabitha has been able to find because she has done so much research on this topic. She is so thorough in in what she can find and what she can pull up and the incidence of these defects in babies so sad because we know that if we had been able to have this awareness of the importance of avoiding chemicals there in the first place then it wouldn't have possibly happened so what I'm really hoping is that for everyone that's listening you can take this information and become empowered make changes you know even if it's just a little bit of a change you're going to be reducing the burden of chemicals on yourself now just before I get any further I just want to address like the common thought that many people have in that you know chemicals everything is chemical all of these are around us chemical is a term that we are using as a bit of a descriptor to refer to something called an endocrine disrupting chemical so it's a substance that's actually interfering with your hormones and with your dna yep so it's something that we do know is a real thing and it's a scary thing and we want to increase awareness So I really hope everyone enjoys this podcast today. Thank you so much in advance for listening. Enjoy. Hi, Tabitha. Thank you so much for joining me today. Alison, it's a pleasure. Uh, So I'm so excited to have you here to talk about all of the things to do with reducing chemicals in our life and the impact that it makes on us. So I know that, um, for instance, your your book, One Bite at a Time, and your e-course, Liquid Chemicals, it's all about the ways in which you can reduce our exposure to harmful chemicals or, or toxins um, in our environment. And so you put a huge amount of work into creating these resources, something which I'm very grateful for. Uh, but many people don't really appreciate the impact that toxins are having on their health or on their children or even on their grandchildren. Would you be able to explain the impact that the toxin exposure may, many people are exposed to is having absolutely and I, and I really hear you there Alison that uh, it's 
quite often overlooked. You know, we tend to have to work with this sort of consumer myth that if something's available on the shelf, you know, at Woolies or wherever we might be shopping, um, you know, for personal care product or whether it be a vegetable or a herb, that it must be safe for us because someone's sort of taking care of our own health interests and the interests of our, of our infants and unborn children uh, over their bottom dollar. But this is something that I have to, you know, without it all being fearful, I have to manage and undo a lot in clinical practice, even when we train, as you would be full aware, um, with our nutrition and herbal medicine, there's not a huge uh, amount of attention given to environmental medicine. But I think after a solid 15 or 16 years in clinical practice uh, now, or probably 10 years in, to be honest, uh, you know, six or seven years ago, it started to dawn on me that there was more to the picture. You know, it, we weren't just our genetics and, and certainly we could have an impact on the expression of our genes via nutrition, but there were a couple of other big players. So I like to talk about it as almost a triad or a triangle of, um, of, of a lens that I look at every single client that walks through my clinic door uh, through this lens. So we've got their, their inherited tendencies via their uh, genetics. Then we've got how we can manipulate those or keep particular genes switched on and off via our nutritional biochemistry. And the third apex of the triangle really is our environment. Whether we be discussing here our um, active stress management or our exposures to pesticides at certain stages of development or air pollution having an impact on our expression of things like asthma or um, atopic conditions uh, and uh, other, you know, a whole host of other endocrine disrupting chemicals that we might be exposed to on a day-to-day -day basis aren't totally unbeknownst to us because we've got this uh, sense of um, confidence that anything available on the shelf uh, is going to be safe. So, Look, it was a great deal of, of work preparing the One Bite at a Time book with my co-author, Sarah Lance. We both put an enormous amount of effort into this manuscript and we wanted to make sure it was thorough and comprehensive but also entertaining and obviously a reference to the literature. And it it became quite a behemoth. It's a, it's a very big read. Uh, however, it is lighthearted and you can pick it up and put it down at any point. But um, we really felt that there was a lack of knowledge in the um, in our in our industries in our professions, uh, but also with the public in understanding the sorts of impacts that these chemicals could be having on um, on all of the the health presentations and health complaints that we see daily in clinic. Yeah, it's such a tricky minefield to talk to some people about because it's almost like when you do start to broach that concept, it's putting fear out there and it raises the question of who you can trust, what can I trust, what are people hiding from me? And, yes, in regards to yours and Sarah's book, it's absolutely beautiful. I wish I could give it to everyone. And it's beautiful just to look at as well. And the paper is beautiful. And you used recycled paper, didn't you? Just from a sustainability perspective, um, it was really important to us to, to have that extra expenditure to, to honour what we were writing about, really. Yes, that's so beautiful. It seems to be a bit of a hidden issue that there is a growing number of defects in babies that are preventable with the correct nutrition or by avoiding the chemicals which can cause this. Well, the first defect I can talk to is uh, hypospadias. And for those of you that might not be familiar with what that is, hypospadias is a condition where a baby boy is born with the opening of his urethra presenting somewhere along the shaft of his penis instead of at the tip of the penis. And that is a very scary thought. Obviously, it is um, picked up at birth and it is, well, it can be easily corrected by surgery. But this is one of those presentations that you know affects in Australian babies affects maybe one in every 220 or 230 live male births and there are some reports of it in parts of WA actually impacting one in every 150 live male births um, but wherever we draw the statistics from the Australian statistics from uh, it is uh, there is consensus that there's been a significant increase in the presentation of this uh, birth defect in baby boys and when we think through you know we don't have an exact answer as to why but when we think through uh, the fact that the testes and that the penile struct structure are, are 
quite significantly formed by about 14 weeks gestation. If that mum is unbeknownst to her, you know, bathing herself in endocrine disrupting chemicals or androgen blocking chemicals or further to that some plastics chemicals which are estrogen mimicking, then that has enormous potential to derail some of that structural development that's occurring at the cusp of the first and second trimester of, of pregnancy. So uh, hyperspadius is one such defect that we've seen significantly increase uh, incidence of over the last, say, three to four decades. But there are some other conditions too that we can't really call, um, you know, uh, defects, just things like asthma. Asthma in kids we've seen significant increases of, whether some proportion of that be in increases in our diagnostics, uh, but certainly we know that when fragrances are in the air at home or if there's a great deal of particulate or if someone is living in um, a more industrialised area near a main road um, and also if someone is living in a damp or mouldy home, that they have a significantly increased uh, risk of being diagnosed with an upper respiratory um, atopic condition such as asthma. And, you know, when we when we ask in census data how much time as Australians we feel like we spend indoors. Um, roughly 66% uh, of our time we feel like we spend indoors. But reality is, and the World Health Organisation is quoted as saying that we spend more like 90% of our daily time indoors when we look at things like commuting and uh, communal uh, you know, areas, community areas like shopping centres or daycares or schools and certainly for the time that we're, we're asleep at home. So when we spend such a significant proportion of our time indoors, it's really critical that we start looking at, at what, you know, amounts of dust and how we're removing that dust and, you know, what sort of fragrances we're using um, and uh, perfumed products and cleaning uh, cleaning gear where we're... Um, investing in and bringing through the front doors at home because all of these things can also trigger um, asthma. Yes, thank you for that. So there's so many things that we do need to be considerate of while we're doing that preconception phase but also just in our day-to-day -day life as well. Um, are these chemicals also affecting a, a couple's ability to conceive? Yes, so the way that I like to think about it, and this very much reflects the body of literature as well, is that this sperm are the smallest cell of the entire human body. And that's very, very significant because what that means is that they tend to be the most vulnerable cell to um, environmental uh, exposures, whether those exposures be EMF or um, plastics, chemicals, or, you know, toxins of choice like alcohol and caffeine or... Um, uh, you know, um, radiation from working in radiology departments, etc. So uh, I know that there was a, a really large um, meta-analysis published just a couple of years ago showing that in uh, Western men there's been a reduction in sperm counts and sperm concentration by over 50% over the last four decades, over the last 40 years. And uh, the, the author, um, Professor Levine, of this study, of this meta-analysis or pooling of data, uh, basically said that male reproductive markers can be used as markers of environmental exposures. Um, and so, yes, in my clinical practice, not only am I seeing um, uh, more than ever uh, the benefits of a preconception program, um, I'm, I'm absolutely seeing increasingly um, uh, compromised semen analysis reports. And, um, and to have that perspective of, say, 14 or 15 years of looking at these reports, even in my short career of 15 years, I've seen significant changes to sperm counts and concentrations and, and also, um, uh, you know, worsenings to things like DNA fragmentation, so higher amounts of DNA damage in the sperm, just as a result of or, you know, there are so many ways that these uh, chemicals can cause damage. So they don't just uh, mimic some endogenous hormones or block receptors of hormones. They can also compromise my, the mitochondrial health of cells, including the cells of the eggs and uh, of the sperm, the DNA in there. So, um, well, you know, the answer in a nutshell is yes. I would say reproduction is one of those areas that we cannot tease separate or tease apart from environmental medicine. Mm, I think that's like a really interesting point about how it is 
that something that affects the sperm so greatly being that there's such a small unit. I think like the ratio of a sperm to an oocyte is actually very dramatically different, isn't it? Yeah. It's something like a pinhead compared to a marble. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, um, and also in one ejaculate, we can be looking at 200 million sperm mm. as quite a reasonably average, you know, sperm count. But they can be delicate. Oh, they're really delicate and very, very vulnerable. But the great thing about that is that they tend to respond to um, changes in diet or improvements in diet and uh, specific antioxidants really, really beautifully. So not only are they very vulnerable, but considering they swim in the semen, the sperm cells swim in the semen, really semen just being a byproduct of uh, the, that gentleman's lifestyle and nutrition, you know, the more antioxidant factors that are in there and the less environmental contaminants that are in his semen that the sperm are bathing in, the better the better um, outcomes he has from from a fertility perspective. Mm. But when we when we look at the ANZAR data, the data um, gathered by all of the Australian New Zealand IVF clinics, we know that there are four major groups of infertility that present for IVF or IUI in, in Australasia, for example. And this is something that I think is really important to discuss because we often think of infertility or, or subfertility as a female issue. But what we know based on this ANZAR data from 2016 is that 33% of people presenting for IVF are presenting uh, 33% of couples presenting to IVF are presenting because of a female-only infertility factor. And 27.7% of those couples presenting for IVF help are presenting for a male-only infertility factor. About 15% of couples present because of combined male and female factors. But the fourth major group presenting for help is this, about 22% of couples are presenting for this unexplained infertility. And when we compare this 2016 data to data from uh, 20 years ago, the major change seen over the last 20 years has been a doubling in the proportion of the unexplained fertility. And I don't think it's unreasonable to consider, and it's actually quite plausible, to consider the role of the uh, environment in this, um, in both male factor infertility and in unexplained infertility. Mm. Yes, definitely. I think it's um, something that might even get overlooked by some of the other health pro professionals that are in IVF as well, possibly. Do you think that there's a growing awareness, though? I do believe there's a growing awareness and a growing um, a growing regard for this concept of collaboration. So mm -hmm. environmental medicine isn't customarily taught in uh, medicine at university and nor is it customarily taught in um, naturopathic medicine or clinical nutritional medicine. Mm, yeah. Um, and that's really a, another major point I wanted to make. So it's nobody's fault really, but it does it does take that very critical thinker, that person that says why and, and you know, who tends to be gathering their own data um, uh, and, and, you know, thinking outside the square to really take this on board. But it's not, it's not just that really. We've seen a huge pouring out of um, published data uh, looking at PubMed um, on uh, environmental factors and male fertility or female fertility over the last, say, two decades. We really, it's not just uh, plausible anymore. We've got some really, really good data showing how significant the impact is of these chemicals on fertility. Mm, for sure. And it's interesting what you were saying as well in regards to the sperm data, that, that how that's changing, because the reference ranges are changing as well, aren't they? Well, that's exactly right. So when we look at the World Health Organization's reference um, values uh, within semen analyses, um, uh, the last, you know, Two times ago that the um, reference values were set were 1999 and then they were reset or the, the reference values and parameters were changed again or published again by the WHO in 2010. And just in that 11-year um, uh, span, you know, things like the re healthy reference range for volume went from 2 mils to 1.5 and normal concentration for um, natural conception went from 20 million sperm per mil to 15 million sperm per mil and uh, the percent of normal forms that were considered uh, 
normal and acceptable in 1999 were that 14% of sperm morphology looked normal. And in 2010, when those reference values were reissued, uh, uh, the percent of normal forms considered okay for natural conception went down to 4% from 14%. So um, it's, a, it's a very, very big decline. That's right. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so what are some of the sources of toxins that we need to be avoiding? Well, I would say the number one thing is, well, there's no real number one thing. I was going to talk about our food because food is something that we tend to do, you know, three times a day, sometimes more. And I don't just mean, you know, are we buying seasonal local produce, hopefully free from pesticides, um, certified organic where possible, particularly when we look at the environmental working groups, Dirty Dozen List, that's my priority for my organic dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, But certainly also food packaging. You know, I really feel strongly that when we lose our skills in the kitchen and we therefore become quite reliant and dependent on industrialised food systems and, uh, you know, canned food and packaged foods and food delivery and takeaway and things like that, um, that we're, we're having a very big impact not just on nutrient delivery but also on the sorts of things that we are ingesting from food packaging. So whether it be the BPA, bisphenol A, epoxy resin lining of canned food or leaching of um, food container packaging chemicals into our food when we reheat um, or whether we be, you know, stir-frying or or cooking on Teflon, you know, non-stick surfaces. I really do think that in the kitchen is a very, very good place to start, you know, using steel containers for food or uh, freezing batch batch soups or batch bolognaises in glass Pyrex dishes, um, uh, using things like steel water bottles rather than aluminium and certainly rather than plastic. I don't think there is such a thing as safe plastics really. Uh, so everything in our house is, is either glass or certainly steel because uh, it's easier to carry, using really nice brand steel thermoses to, to be able to take some hot food off to work for yourself or in the lunchbox for kids or to daycare, et cetera. So the kitchen is one of those places that we can start. And then I guess the the cleaning, the pantry, uh, you know, uh, the cleaning cupboard and uh, the personal care products that we choose is a very close second because how we're going to be exposed to these chemicals, uh, whether they be pesticides, food packaging chemicals, um, fragrances, phthalates, endocrine disruption chemicals, really we're either going to ingest them we're going to breathe them in or we're going to be putting them on our body. So certainly one by one, switching out your personal care product range, whether it be the um, soap that you're using or your shampoos, conditioners, your moisturising creams, your deodorants, great place to, to, to start a, a good switch out. And then uh, definitely with the cleaning products and something that people often overlook if they're fortunate enough to have a cleaner coming in once a fortnight or once a week, that's that's quite significant um, bang for your buck to to have your own cleaning products at home. You know, probably one of my favourite um, ranges of cleaning products, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it, <laughs> brands, but I love the Abode range. Um, the Abode range by Nicole Bilsma, building biologist. She's formulated this range to be not only extremely effective, um, but uh, absolutely naturopathic approved and, and clean, free from all uh, a synthetic fragrance and preservatives and anything that would irritate the airways uh, on inhaling. So I know that I do a big uh, stock up of whether it be glass cleaner or stainless steel cleaner or floor cleaner, toilet cleaner, um, and the personal care product range. Uh, detergent for the dishwasher for my clothes uh, by the abode range by Nicole Bilsma. I've heard of that range but I never connected that that was by Nicole so that's so cool (laughs) you know there's actually so many uh, wonderful brands coming out now with some basically safe options but we still have to be a little bit um savvy when we're reading the ingredients don't we because often it'll be marked it'll be greenwashed it'll be marketed as being safe so there's certainly steps that we need to take to be careful with that. 
Yeah, well, you shouldn't have to feel like you you need a degree in, you know, biochemistry just to read a label. As a general rule of thumb, the less ingredients, the better. And yep. uh, the more ingredients that you recognise or, you know, for example, that your grandmother would have recognised also in her pantry or in her cleaning arsenal, the better. And there are also some really fabulous resources for DIYs. You can make your own um, deodorants and toothpastes and, you know, um, really wonderful cleaning products at home. I think it can be uh, so easy to do, but the whole concept of it is incredibly daunting. So for people who have just uh, basically discovered that, oh, my gosh, this is something that I need to do, like it can be very overwhelming. So buying products like that is a good place to start. And then in the meantime, they can, I guess, gradually transition into making some themselves. Absolutely. And don't get me wrong, it's not about perfection. It's just about those small little changes that we can make uh you know once you run out of one particular cleaning product uh swapping it out for something from the, the health food store or the natural the natural aisle at the supermarket uh can be really useful i wouldn't i certainly don't do a great deal of diy just from being time poor with all of the, the long consulting hours but um it, you know for those people who do have access to bulk you know fresh lemon juice and bicarb soda and vinegars you know a little bit of those sorts of ingredients can go a very very long way and I've got some ideas and recipes for those things in my Be Your Own Solution ebook, which is really a follow-on from the One Bite at a Time book that I co-authored with Sarah Lands, Dr. Sarah Lands. Um, what I did as an outcome of that book, because we never made that book One Bite at a Time available internationally or as an ebook. But what I did a couple of years after publishing that book is uh, took the solutions section and really turned it into a, an accessible ebook that's downloadable from my website I think it's just $22 and obviously once downloaded can be on all of your devices a great read for a domestic flight or something like that but yeah I talk about some of the ingredients you can use in DIYs um, or uh, brands that you can purchase uh, quite cost effectively in that ebook amazing oh well we'll definitely link to that Say a couple has just learnt all of this information. Do you recommend a certain time period for people who are trying to conceive and how long does it take for these chemicals to be eliminated? That's a really good question, Alison. And, look, I guess the first thing I have to say is every couple's different, right? So absolutely environmental medicine is a topic that's relevant to both partners um, of the baby-making couple and uh, certainly, um, particularly when I'm working with a mature couple, I'm never really wanting to extend or delay their trying to conception uh, a time to try to conceive uh, significantly because I understand um, how I could potentially compromise them there. But ultimately, in a very standard, you know, couple just trying to do the best that they can, I would always be advocating for a three or four month window where we don't just work to maximize their nutrient status so we have to sort of make sure that the thyroid is of of both couples but particularly the female is getting adequate iodine so it's really ready to make abundant thyroid hormone for uh, the baby in that first trimester as well as mum and I'm also working to make sure iron stores are replete and um, you know, vitamin D levels are good for, you know, successful implantation. So it's not just about maximising nutrient um, stores and uh, abundance of, of good phytochemicals to protect DNA. It is also for both partners about reducing chemical load and some of these fat-soluble uh, chemicals that tend to sort of end up in the more steady places of our body, like our adipose tissue, potentially even our brain, and some of the heavy metals like lead that can get into the bones, these can take months and months of a really, you know, moderate uh, effort detox to clear from the body. But for the most part, things like our organophosphate pesticides, they really do have a half-life in our body measured in hours you know, between 8 and 16 hours, depending on, on each chemical and all of those unique um, factors of each person, you know, how, how well they've um, inherited particular detox enzymes, etc. So when we work for a period of, you know, 12 
weeks up to 16 weeks, even up to 20 weeks for both genders, we really are having a very significant impact on the quality of the DNA that that couple, both of them are offering their next generation by reducing mum's body burden and also by reducing dad's body burden and maximising his nutrient delivery. We're having a very big impact on the quality, sometimes also the morphology and the motility and even his sperm count. So three to four months is ideal in a perfect world and that's what I work towards all the time. Some people I go longer and some people obviously I have to expedite that. Yeah, so good to understand that and it, obviously everyone is so different. <laughs> depends on their case, depends on what they're exposed to. Mm, it sure does and, you know, it really, again, every case is different. I you know, to your point there, even the home environment, there's a great deal that we can do to transition uh, the health of the home as well. So whether that couple decides to put on a water filter or, you know, make sure there's no mould problems, you know, we really, the work is, is really endless. Sure, for sure. And I know in your book that you co-authored with Dr. Sarah Lance, um, there's a section which you refer to as the pillars, and that provides a really good guide on how to reduce your chemical exposure and your lifestyle um, step by step. And I would love for you to share some of those with me. Um, one of the things that I've found really interesting is how you can improve the air quality and, and mm. why is that important? <laughs> Yeah, sure. When we think about just the, the, back to 101, the basics, in terms of our chemical exposures, we're either going to breathe them in, we're going to consume them, eat them on our food as, you know, pesticide or food packaging, or we're going to put them on our body um, uh, or touch them in some way or another. They'll go through our skin. And when it comes to our home, you know, I, I believe that most Australian adults think that we spend about two-thirds of our time indoors, whereas the World Health Organisation suggests we spend more like 90% of our time indoors. And a huge proportion of that time indoors is really in the bedroom. So uh, air quality is critical uh, because, you know, first of all, what is air quality? We want the air to be moving. We don't want it to be too stagnant. So absolutely having the windows swung open and uh, making sure that there's really good circulation is very, very important for air quality. And if that's really tricky to do because of the nature of the building or it's a high-rise apartment uh, or you're living on a really main road, certainly it is possible to buy an air filter that includes a, a HEPA filter just to be uh, filtering any um, volatile organic carbons or uh, uh, fragrance smells and, and even dust out of, the, um, out of the air to purify it for us. Nicole Bilsma, who writes um, Healthy Homes, she always always says buy a filter or be the filter and that is absolutely the case uh, with air but um, we certainly wouldn't want to have a great deal of damp problem or mold in a bedroom or in a bedroom cupboard because those those exotoxins that we can be breathing in can be very very uh, serious uh, respiratory irritants not just upset the eyes but especially the sinuses and uh, the the nasal cavity and, and the entire respiratory system and um you know, just for example, we can get more upper respiratory tract infections um, and more asthma when there's a big mould problem at home and that can sometimes require intervention, things like antibiotics, which we want to be using really, really minimally. Um, but I always advocate for plants in the house that we can have in the bedroom that can filter the air for us. And um, air quality is just sort of 101 to have a really nice peace lily or a mother-in-law's tongue or some sort of uh, confirmed air quality improving plant in each room. It can have a really big difference. So can vacuuming uh, with a really good quality uh, filter, a HEPA filter, just to make sure there's not deal a great deal of dust or, um, or particulate um, around to, to irritate the respiratory system as well. Mm, and that's really interesting point about how leading to more infections leads to more antibiotics. It's one of those connections that you don't often make as well. So it has such a flow on effect in that regard. And yeah. those plants that you mentioned as well, they're so beautiful, but also those ones are fairly easy to grow indoors. I know mother-in-law's tongue, it's, um, you can grow it from a cutting as well. 
It's sturdy. Yes, you can grow it from a cutting. Now, the, the issue there is, even though that is, you're absolutely right, it is the, the roots and some of the rhizome roots that are actually working to filter the air at night time. Wow. So, you, do, you know, sometimes <laughs> they have some really good quality soil. Um, it's not just the leaves. It's also the roots in the soil that can be filtering. There you go. So, yeah, that'll take a long time to establish that from a cutting anyway. (laughs) And I forgot to mention, of course, fragranced candles and fragranced personal care products and all those sorts of things, you know, air fresheners that we can be, you know, heavily marketed. um, But certainly we want to keep those um, synthetic fragrances out of of our air in our home, in our bedroom. We can just use, again, fresh cut flowers, uh, plants, or if we really want to, some essential oils in an oil burner. Um, or some sort of essential oil diffuser can replace all of those synthetic fragrances, mm-hmm. um, some of those act as endocrine disrupting chemicals, just to really get back to basics. That's something that I think so many people wouldn't have considered. Most people know about plastic water bottles, but not so much about candles. And that's such an easy thing to get rid of and swap out. Yeah, there are some really wonderful companies doing things like uh, uh, soy soy candles or beeswax candles with uh, rather than synthetic fragrance, just using um, essential oil uh, to fragrance the to fragrance the room as a treat. But yes, it wouldn't be unusual for me to see someone in clinic with a thyroid disorder who has habitually had very strong smelling perfumes that they've sprayed on themselves or that has habitually um, burned uh, synthetic uh, candles in the bedroom as they've been sleeping. These endocrine-disrupting fragrance chemicals, they're really quite disruptive at very, very small amounts. If those small amounts we're exposed to over a long period of time, they can really wreak havoc. Yes, it really adds up. Okay. Are there any other top hazards in the home that you would be wanting to warn people about? I think the first thing that comes to mind are our cleaning products. You know, the first thing that comes to mind, these can be such an easy swap out. You know, even as a child, I remember, you know, um, my mum bleaching the bathroom from time to time and all of us getting a bit of a headache, you know, that evening or that afternoon. Uh, There can be some really harsh cleaning chemicals that aren't just respiratory irritants, but that are also nervous system irritants and potentially carcinogenic. So really getting back to basics with the sorts of ingredients that we're using to to clean in the home. Um, Certainly, I mentioned dampness and mould before, I think these are often overlooked as um, as uh, real stressors, real environmental stressors on the body, not just on the respiratory system, but also the nervous system when, when we think about things like chronic inflammatory response syndrome, uh, to have access to a really good building biologist to come and do an assessment on the home, they'll always check for dampness, mould, um, They'll look at cleaning products, sometimes take shavings of the paint off window sills to check for lead in paint. And uh, they'll also usually use a gas meter and, and all sorts of fantastic sounding gadgets to test for EMF and radio frequency in the home. So it's not being a, being a naturopath and herbalist uh, with a very big environmental interest. Actually, EMF is not my area of chemical expertise like it is for the wonderful Nicole Bilsmer and her team of building biologists. But I, do, I don't think we should underestimate, underestimate the impact of EMF on um, particularly spermatozoa health, uh, but um, on the production of melatonin for both uh, partners and uh, on hormonal health all, all around. It's such an interesting topic and I think that the knowledge around that is going to definitely grow. Can you talk about the safety measures put in place in Australia with chemicals and are there any? Yes, of course, there are some safety measures. Perhaps I can speak most to uh, pesticides, for example. Um, More broadly, I can share that our safety measures when it comes to chemicals are not informed by the precautionary principle, as are a great deal of um, uh, chemical uh, laws in other countries, so particularly the countries of the EU who introduced um, the REACH um, the REACH legislation, which was really informed by the precautionary principle, um, uh, which means that our laws 
are not informed by the precautionary principle, which means that it's up to bodies other than the manufacturers to prove safety. And that leaves this really enormous gap between, um, you know, there's no responsibility on the uh, manufacturers of particular products to prove the safety of their product, not just for human health, but also for wildlife health. Um, whereas, you know, particularly when it comes to pesticides, I know that we have the AVPMA that governs um, uh, the laws on, on pesticide use and uh, the AVPMA funding is predominantly by the pesticide industry. So there are all sorts of pesticides that we are still using in Australia, things like chlorpyrifos. Um, we uh, add on our fruits and vegetables and nuts like macadamia. Chlorpyrifos has been banned in the EU for over a decade, but it's still used here, um, despite the fact that there's data linking chlorpyrifos to neuro, um, neurodevelopmental behavioural disorders. We still use it here because we don't have that absolute proof that it causes harm. We just have very, very suggestive uh, correlative data. We also still use pesticides and insecticides like paraquat that have been banned in the EU for over a decade. Um, paraquat is extremely toxic even in just tiny amounts and has been linked really heavily in the, in the published data to things like Parkinson's disease. But the data according to the AVPMA whilst some of these chemicals have been under review for years and years. Uh, the AVPMA doesn't feel that the data is strong enough for us to be able to pull it off our shelves. That's really scary when you consider, like, I know it's correlative, maybe it's not 100%, but, it, like, you, you know, that's pretty scary. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, you know, we could talk about the precautionary principle as the look before you leap yeah. principle, really, you know, really, um, if you even have some data suggesting that it's dangerous, we should think twice about having it freely available. So um, I, I agree with you entirely. And, you know, we are we are a wonderful and lucky country in so many regards, you know, just being able to turn the tap on and have clean, treated water come out of that, we should have a great deal of gratitude for that. But at the same time, we really are very behind um, a huge proportion of the world when it comes to chemical control and chemical safety. Mm. With the burden of the burden of decision making is often put on the person who brings the food into the into the home. And when I think about new mums um, with young babies at home who are already very overwhelmed and underslept and sometimes undernourished, you know, for these women to feel that they have to almost uh, you do their own research and, and earn themselves a bit of a, a pseudo chemical uh, degree just by reading all of the labels and trying to understand which ones are, are going to be safe and, and able to be brought into the home it does feel very unfair for sure and I think that's often when a lot of women or a lot of families do start to become aware of that sort of information because um, you know they've got a new baby they want to do everything that they can for it and then that information gets shared around that and then it's um, this ever opening world of information about these chemicals and how much it actually affects. Ooh. That that actually leads me on to my next question for you, which was what was your aha moment? So when you started on your journey of increasing awareness about chemicals? Look, I'd say it was absolutely parenting. So I was a young mum and I think I, I had Jazzy before, oh, around about the time I was 27. And Obviously, I was. It was a huge learning curve for me, but I think uh, the fact that I breastfed her for such a while till she was maybe sixteen or seventeen months, it's very hard not to think about it when you're nourishing a baby from your own body. It's very hard not to think about what else could she be getting or he be getting. Um, so I started to. I'd already done some postgraduate studies in environmental medicine to sort of awaken me to this world, but I really started to feel a very big sense of responsibility when I was a, a new mum, a breastfeeding mum. Obviously, it had been on my radar preconception and throughout the pregnancy. There are things that we don't eat whilst we're pregnant, etc. But really, having a baby in arms for me uh, before I was even thirty just really made me question what I was using to clean the home, what candles or incense I might have been using, what deodorant I was using. I remember not using deodorant because of the aluminium ingredient and quite often the fragrances. Um, so this really probably 
being a mum kicked me off on my um, on my journey to, to better understanding not just how I could reduce exposures but also how I could maximise mine and my, my child's resilience because there's no doubt about it, it is our babes, it is our little ones that have the highest vulnerability to all of these chemicals. Not only are their detox enzymes very immature and their little organs themselves tiny and immature, a little neonates kidneys are smaller than a 50 cent piece um, but in addition to that uh, developmentally they're at such you know a critical uh, critically vulnerable windows because their organs are developing and some of those organs develop sequentially so if there's an error early on it's very hard to recover from. Mm. Yeah that's certainly a bit of a scary point as well and and one of the points that you raise in your book as well is that the safety data that we do have is not relevant to kids or to babies mm. because of all of those different things that you just said about their different detox pathways and yeah and they're actually just quite small as well so <laughs> their dose is going to be very different. That's exactly right. So yes, a lot of the a lot of the rules and regulations, uh, there's always a, a window of, of, of error that's that's allowed. But a lot of the um, safety uh, study and toxicology research and data that we have is based on adult rats, not pregnant rats, not baby rats, um, but adults with fully formed organs and fully formed systems. And most of the toxicology um, uh, data that we have is also chemical by chemical. And we don't really understand very well this cocktail effect. And, you know, uh, for example, glyphosate is often referred to in the um, body of literature as the gateway toxin. So if we have exposures to glyphosate, multiple times daily, effectively this body burden of glyphosate makes uh, us more vulnerable to other chemicals. It, it compromises our detoxification of other chemicals we might be exposed to at the same time, like heavy metals and endocrine-disrupting chemicals. So we really don't understand very well or, or it's just literally too complicated for uh, conventional toxicology to understand the additive and synergistic effects. Mm. And so that's where the precautionary principle, as you were talking about earlier, would be so good if we could have that here in Australia. Yeah, if it informed our policies more, we'd be in a much better position. Mm. I do understand the difficulty of the whole thing for our politicians and the powers that be and the fact that, you know, we, they do have to come up with a solution, but sometimes mm. you just think... Um, <laughs> Maybe they just need a little bit more sort of education about these sorts of things. Mm. Look, and and it really is a conundrum and we've got ourselves into this mess and it's not an us versus them thing. You know, there's often quite a push from consumers to want really good-looking produce and to have access to produce like apples and tomatoes all year round, whereas if we just flashed back 100 years, it just didn't used to be the case. So, you know, we're all busy, we all enjoy convenience, uh, but the inconvenience of convenience to, to steal as someone else's term is just that is just that we often overlook the impact of, of uh, packaging chemicals and particular inflammatory uh, seed oils that have been used to, to cook or to, to that have been involved in the production of um, of uh, snack foods and things like that. We really probably the more aligned we are with nature around us you know the more in sync we are with uh the seasons and with uh you know having a good idea of where our own food has come from and, and the stronger we are in the kitchen and we don't have to be really gourmet chefs in the kitchen but just to know how to prepare a couple of meals and a couple of batch cooks and to be able to store them well even to freeze them um, as opposed to getting takeout or ordering. Uh, even, you know, it does feel very nourishing, doesn't it, to grow your own lemons or your own rosemary or parsley just to, to, to get a little bit back into the sink of how things used to be and to live simply often can go a very, very long way. Mm, for sure. And those are some really easy things to grow yourself too. So even if you're not like a super green thumb, you can grow a couple of bits yourself and reduce how much you're being exposed to. <laughs> Mm. So, okay so what can I ask you what is your take-home message for people ah well I guess we're all at different places on the journey of reducing our chemical load really so I wouldn't ever want any 
of my work, whether it be uh, One Bite at a Time, co-authored with Sarah, or my ebook called Be Your Own Solution, or the e-course that I've launched, the I Quit Chemicals, with um, fabulous pharmacist and uh, herbalist Danielle Shirley, we would never want any of that work to shame anyone. My my take-home message is: be curious, ask questions, and see. If there's just one little thing you can do each day to reduce your body burden of environmental chemicals, whether it be switching over your plastic Tupperware to steel lunchboxes for the kids or steel drink bottles or or glass Pyrex dishes, whether it be um, purchasing a particular type of produce that you eat a lot of, organic, deciding to prioritise some of your organic dollar onto apples or spinach or broccoli or any of those things from the Dirty Dozen list. Um, it might be swapping over from uh, normal conventional tea bags or coffee beans to certified organic ones. But one little thing each day um, that you can do to reduce some of your body burden You know that whole expression, how do you eat an elephant, just one bite at a time? Break it up and make it easy for yourself, but just know that you're making decisions each day to push you in that direction of reducing your body burden and and maximising your resilience. I love it. And that makes it so much more achievable for people too. Thank you. Pleasure, pleasure. (laughs) So where can people go to learn more about this topic? Well, there's a, like I mentioned, there is that e-course, I Quit Chemicals, which we launch three or four times a year. That's a 10-module e-course. Um, each module is about an hour and a half, and we go through each of the different rooms in the house, and we talk about pro- uh, protecting fertility, and we talk about uh, protecting men's health and, um, and the next generation. Uh, certainly that's a, a really um, comprehensive way to understand this topic better. And uh, iquitchemicals.net is the website for that. But probably the easiest thing, it, in addition to the book, One Bite at a Time, which people can purchase from my website, awakenyourhealth.com.au, I also launched more recently the Be Your Own Solution ebook, which is downloadable for $22 from my website. And it is a summary and an extension of the solutions chapter of my book and being in PDF uh, ebook version, it's a really wonderful thing to download and have on your iPad for a flight or uh, to, to be able to refer back to and to be able to, to spotlight search particular topics as well. So hopefully that's helpful. I mean, I'm in private practice in Wallara three days a week, face to face. And I'm also in a private practice via Zoom and Skype on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. But I encourage people to ask questions and to seek out the help of building biologists and and uh, and their their primary uh, healthcare provider on uh, on topics such as this. Um, and I'm here to help as a backup. That's so wonderful. Thank you. And I will put links for all of that in the show notes as well on the blog. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it's been so nice speaking with you, Alison. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing all your wonderful wisdom. So I, I yeah, I hope you have a lovely week. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much. Really nice to connect with you, and um, and I love I love what you do with your uh, podcast. So keep up the wonderful work. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Well, bye everyone. Have a lovely, lovely day.